Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm Steve Clark, and I have the pleasure of carrying the water on this evening, because we'd forgotten to do it. The hottest evening, and we have no water. Um, so I think we're going to learn a little bit more about the RAF and one particular area of that tonight. And I know you're going to enjoy it. I've seen the slides, and there's some fantastic uh, scenes to look at. So enough of me. Will you please welcome retired squadron leader, Graham Laurie. Good evening. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and uh, thank you very much for turning up in such large numbers. Um, a quick word about why I'm talking about this subject. Um, I joined the Royal Air Force in 1964, and after basic training on the Jet Provost, uh, became a transport pilot, flying the, what in civil terms was the Hawker Siddeley 748, but the Andover, as far as the RAF were concerned. And uh, after a tour, at Abingdon, uh, I moved out to Sharjah as a captain on the Andover Mark I, came back to do CFS course and flew as an instructor on chipmunks at East Lowlands University's Air Squadron up in Edinburgh. And after that, it was, of all places, out to Brunei. I'd applied, as you do when you're in training command, you apply to get out of it, and it, I didn't even know where Brunei was when I saw this signal, but I applied for it, and on my birthday in 1972, I was told by the Ministry of Defence that I was being posted there. So it was great, and I was going out as the, to fly on the Sultan's flight for the Sultan of Brunei on his 748. I came back, back onto the Andover in, on 32 Squadron at North Oak, and then over to Bryce Norton, still on the Andover, but this time doing flight checking, uh, doing flying to every active RAF station uh, and checking their landing aids. Great fun. And after that, I became the Andover examiner. And while I was doing that, I was summoned for interview at Royal Air Force Benson uh, for a post as the personal pilot to the Prince of Wales. There were six of us interviewed. I was the one that got the job, and I'm absolutely certain, because I, at the time, was examining the pilots on the Queen's flight. I'm certain it was a case of better the devil they know than the one they don't. Um, by ducking and weaving, I stayed there 15 years until uh, the Queen's flight was disbanded in 1995. And for my last five years, I served with the unit that took over Royal Flying then, and that was number 32, the Royal Squadron at RAF Northolt. I retired at the end of 2000, and since then, I've been doing this, and a few other things as well, but I enjoy doing this. Um, we've all heard, as in the introduction was mentioned, the RAF 100 this year, but Royal Flying goes back even further. It goes back 101 years, this month, in fact, and it was the Prince of Wales who was the first member of the royal family to fly. He flew twice in France and once in Italy when this photograph was taken. He was a guards officer, but he flew with the Royal Flying Corps. His brother, Prince Albert, also flew with the Royal Naval Air, State, Air, Air Service and at Royal Naval Air Station Sleaford, which of course nowadays is Royal Air Force Cranwell. And at the end of the war, 
it was Prince Albert who was the first to learn to fly. He flew from Wadden Airfield, which later became a little bit larger and was Croydon Airport and uh, the early flights into uh, Europe. Um, but he learned to fly there, and there he is talking to his instructor prior to one of the sorties. And at the end of 1919, he was gazetted in the London Gazette as a squadron leader and awarded his RAF wings. The also, just after the war, it was the Prince of Wales who also went flying, this time in a Sopwith Dove from Hounslow Aerodrome, just off uh, near where Heathrow is today, of course. And he was flown by one of the members or had flown him during the First World War. He took along some members of King George V's household to watch, and they took off. Uh, did some aerobatics in the overhead and then came down and did a series of landings and takeoffs. And uh, at the end of it, he is uh, thanking the uh, pilot, Captain Barker, who was Captain Barker VC. During one day during the war, he flew five sorties. On the first sortie, he took a bullet through the knee, but he carried on flying. On the fifth sortie of the day, he took a bullet through his elbow and it actually shattered his elbow joint. And he still had that injury when he was flying the Prince of Wales. And if you look carefully at this photo, you'll see he's actually taking his arm out of a small sling. And he'd operated the aircraft with the throttle in the crook of his elbow. Now that story got back from the household to King George V the next morning. He called both his sons in and said, you will not fly again. If things like that go on, it is far too dangerous. So during the early 20s and the middle 20s, there was no royal flying at all. And in fact, we had to wait until 1928, when after a lot of pressure on uh, King George V by the Prince of Wales, he was allowed to be flown by the Royal Air Force, 24 Squadron from RAF Northolt, to one of his uh, engagements. And I think the thing that stands out here is the huge crowd that are watching. And of course, the Prince of Wales was very popular, but you've got to remember that in this period of time, people were still turning out just to see aircraft fly. The problem for the prince was that he had to dress up like that to go flying. Not really suitable for royal visits, as you can see. So, it was more pressure on poor King George V. Could he buy his own aircraft? Initially, the answer was no, but later on, he eventually succumbed. And uh, he bought a de Havilland Gypsy Moth, and started to be flown by a pilot from 24 Squadron to his own engagements. Now, to what he had to wear there was just an Irving jacket over his suit. So when he landed, he'd just stand up, take off the Irving jacket, fold it up, lay it on the back seat, and uh, he was ready to go on a royal visit. The bowler hat, that was handed to him by a flunky on arrival. Of course, you probably guess, having bought his own aircraft, the next question to the poor king was, could he learn to fly it? And again, the answer was no. But again, more pressure. And eventually, towards the end of 1929, 
uh, the, he, the king agreed that the prince could be taught by the Royal Air Force. And he said, if you are considered fit to go solo, then you will do one solo flight. Thereafter, you must always have an RAF pilot with you. The prince agreed, and he did his first solo at the end of November 1929, a 10-minute flight from Royal Air Force Northolt. Immediately after that, the pilot who had sent him solo actually suggested to him he looked for a personal pilot. The squadron leader who taught him had got a full RAF career ahead of him. He realized how keen the prince was, and therefore it wasn't really practical to try and do everything for the prince and have a full RAF career as well. So a recently retired RAF Flight Lieutenant Edward Fielden Mousefield, and as he was known, uh, was given the job of being the personal pilot to the Prince of Wales. The first thing he did was move the aircraft from 24 Squadron's hangar at Northolt over to Royal Air Force Hendon, where there was actually a hangar full of civilian registered aircraft like this, owned by RAF officers. Obviously, the salaries were better then than they were when I was in. Um, but the other thing he realized straight away was that as well as looking after the bookings from the royal households, uh, the engineering side, uh, he and flying the prince, he needed some help. So he got some uh, engineers in to help as well, ex-RAF engineers. And he also realized they needed a larger aircraft. So they actually ended up with the de Havilland Pussmoth, because even in those days, it would be useful for the private secretary to fly with the prince and on odd occasions, even a security man as well. To show you just how keen on flying the Prince was, in 1931, he did an overseas tour to South America. He wanted to take the aircraft with him. So what they did, they took the wings off the fuselage, put the fuselage and the wings on HMS Eagle, the aircraft carrier, sailed it out to Buenos Aires, reassembled it out there, and he used it during that royal tour. And on that royal tour, he also became the first member of the royal family to land on an aircraft carrier, sitting in the back seat of a Ferry 3, and landed back on HMS Eagle one night. Now, back in UK, when he was visiting RAF stations, he would allow the Royal Air Force to fly him in. If he went to a civilian set up, then he would use his own aircraft. And here you see him at Royal Air Force Andover in Hampshire in 1931, visiting the squadrons that were on exercise there. And again, as the story evolves, slowly aircraft are getting bigger. The next one, the de Havilland Foxmoth, which of course gave the prince a cabin where he could have guests in as well, and field and uh, a covered cockpit uh, on the top. Now, I normally, when I show this next slide, say, can you guess where it is? Now, I know football didn't come home, but we are now coming home. The Vickers Viastra, and the Prince of Wales was asked by Vickers to assist designing the interior fit for VIP use, because they could see a market for the rich and famous either purchasing or chartering aircraft to go into Europe, which was becoming the thing to do. And so the prince visited 
Brooklands, and there he is getting out, meeting the managing director. And the gentleman getting out of the aircraft there is actually Edward Fielden, who's flown him in. If you look very carefully, you can just see his wings on his suit jacket. Now, this next slide I'm going to show you is Three Kings, if you think about it. King George V in the middle, uh, the Prince of Wales and future King Edward VIII on the right and the future King George VI on the left. It was taken on the morning of July the 6th, 1935, when the King was going to visit that day the Royal Air Force as part and review the Royal Air Force as part of his Silver Jubilee celebrations. Now, I mentioned that both the princes had learnt to fly. But if I tell you that during his lifetime, King George V nor Queen Mary ever flew, what's he doing wearing RAF wings? Well, I've heard two stories. One is that it was his Air Force. Now, that isn't, that's obviously true. The second one is that this time, it was a lot of pressure on the Air Ministry from the Prince of Wales to award the King honorary wings. And I'm rather inclined to think that was the one that was correct. And as far as we know, it was only King George V and Winston Churchill later in the war that were awarded honorary wings. And as I say, that afternoon, they were going to review the Royal Air Force. And there is an early color photograph of him doing it at Milton Hall with a beautiful yellow Rolls Royce with the King in and the two sons uh, behind. Now, we've got to the middle 30s, and the aircraft that the Prince of Wales was using was the Dragon Rapide. And this became famous in royal flying circles because it was the first aircraft to ever fly a British monarch. Because the day after King George V died, King Edward VIII flew from Bertram Newton, a little airstrip just near Sandringham, down to Hendon to attend his accession council. And he asked the Air Ministry straight away two things. Firstly, would they fund the operating of that aircraft? He would have been entitled to a Royal Air Force aircraft to go to official engagements. He said, but I would rather use my own. And they said, yes, we'll fund it. So they funded the engineering costs, the operating costs, and the engineering costs, which meant moving some RAF engineers into uh, Hendon to look after the aircraft. And the next one was, would they form a royal flight? Now, it had been known as the King's Flight beforehand, or the Royal Flight beforehand, but it was officially named the King's Flight on the 21st of July, 1936. And Edward Fieldham was pulled back off the reserve and made a wing commander to become the first officer commanding. He was actually given the title captain of the King's Flight and he took over at RAF Hendon that day. Now that aircraft was used by other members of the royal family and of course the King. And here is the repeat being used by King Edward VIII the following year at Milden Hall again, reviewing the Royal Air Force. Now, inside the aircraft, it still, although it, he was now king, it still had the, these were beautiful red leather seats. It still had the Prince of Wales feathers on the back of the seats. Obviously, the pilot sitting centrally in the cockpit at the front, and it really was 
fairly luxurious for the time. But of course, he hadn't been king very long when we had the abdication, and you had a classic event which could only happen in Britain. We had a king. It was King George VI. We had a king's flight based at Hendon. It had an officer commanding or captain of the king's flight, which was Edward Fielden. But what it didn't have was any aircraft, because when King Edward VIII abdicated, he took his dragon repeat with him. <laughs> so the first thing that uh, Fielden had to do, really, for the new king was find an aircraft for him to fly and find it pretty quickly. Luckily for him, the airspeed company of Portsmouth were just bringing into service the airspeed envoy. And they ordered one of these for delivery in early 1937. And it was used by other members of the royal family and the king right up until the outbreak of the Second World War. But come the war, there were a couple of changes. First of all, it was decided Royal Air Force Hendon was too close to the center of London for comfort. And therefore, it was suggested that the King's flight should move. Fielden wanted to go to Smith's Lawn at Windsor Castle. Not as silly as it seemed, because where they now play polo, it was a light aircraft landing ground during the 1930s. And if you walk past the, uh, all the polo grounds now to the end of that field, uh, there is the flying barn which was actually where the aircraft were hangered in those early days. But because they wanted a proper RAF station with full security, they moved to Royal Air Force Benson in early 1939. The other thing that changed was the aircraft, because the government had decided that whenever the king flew, yes, he would have a fighter escort, but they wanted the aircraft to be armed as well. And there was no practical way of arming the envoy. So they looked for a replacement aircraft, and they found it in America, the Lockheed Hudson. And that had two gun emplacements, one in the nose and one in the tail. Now, Fieldham flew in the left-hand seat. He put an RAF engineer in the right, and another RAF engineer manned those guns at the front. And I was lucky enough to go to a dinner of the Queen's Flight Association some 15 years ago now, when we had a talk from a gentleman who had manned those guns during the war at the front. And he confirmed two stories for me that I'd already been telling, but it was nice to hear it from the horse's mouth. The first thing was that those guns were never fired in anger during the war. They were fired for training purposes, but never in anger. And the second one was that this rear turret was inside the royal cabin. And therefore, the royal household would not allow an RAF engineer who'd manned the guns in the front, but they would not allow an RAF engineer into the royal cabin to man the guns at the back. He might have dirty fingernails after all. So they had to make a decision. And eventually it was decided that the steward would man the guns at the back. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, he wasn't a member of the forces. He was a footman from Buckingham Palace. So it was probably just as well that those guns were never fired in anger. 
The Hudson was used by other members of the royal family. That's the Duke of Kent, who was working for training command in the early part of the war. Sadly, of course, as you may remember, he uh, died in the Sunderland flying boat accident up in Scotland in 1942. And in fact, in 1942, uh, there were changes. The King's flight was disbanded by the Air Ministry uh, for the remainder of the war. They decided that if the enemy saw a Hudson with a fighter escort, they would know the king was on board. So for the rest of the war, and Fielden ran all his flying throughout the war, organized it all for him, he would use any armed transport aircraft still with a fighter escort. But Fielden went off to join 161 Squadron, initially at Newmarket, and here he is with the other people. 161 Squadron, you may remember, was the squadron that dropped SOE operatives in France, always under moonlight, never with aircraft lights and so forth. And Fieldham was the squadron commander, and he flew quite a number of sorties using the Hudson. At the end of the first winter, the heavier aircraft uh, that the squadron were using, the Halifaxes, were getting bogged down on the grass at Newmarket. So they moved just down the road to Thamesford in Cambridgeshire, just off the A1. And that had a concrete runway, so they were able to use the Halifaxes as well. And Fielden had a very successful wartime career. As I say, he was squadron commander at Newmarket. But when they moved to Thamesford, he became the station commander. And it was there he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his efforts in 1943. At the end of the war, the King's Flight was reformed at Benson. There were a couple of changes as well. Here's Fielden alongside uh, Wing Commander Bill Taken, who was a New Zealander. Fielden had decided he was getting on in years now, and he ought to uh, get in a younger guy to act as the officer commanding and really the senior pilot. But Fielden kept the protocol role of dealing with the royal households, so he kept the title captain of the Queen's Flight, and Bill Taken became officer commanding the Queen's Flight. The other thing that changed, of course, was the aeroplane. And just like uh, British Airways had done, we come back to uh, Brooklands because the aircraft they ordered was the Vickers Viking. And it's so lovely to see one looking remarkably clean and tidy out there at the moment. Um, they ordered two initially, but then shortly afterwards there was a meeting of members of the royal households who decided that in future all major overseas tours would be done by air and therefore they needed more aircraft. So they actually pinched two of the BAA order and made their order up to four. The reason they had to pinch two was because they needed them for early 1947, because the first major overseas tour after the war was to the Union of South Africa. And there you see three of the four Vikings lined up. The first one carried the king and Princess Margaret. The second one carried Her Majesty the Queen and Princess Elizabeth. Now the reason for that, the King and Queen could fly together, but the King couldn't fly with Princess Elizabeth. Uh, the same as today, Her Majesty can't fly with the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales can't fly with Prince William, but he can fly with Prince Harry. They never fly with the next one in line to the throne. So in the event of an accident, then the line of the throne is maintained. The third aircraft carried the ground crew, and the fourth one was flown by this chap, 
Any ideas who it is? I was two when this photo was taken, by the way. I'll give you a clue. Concord. Trubshaw, yes, who was a flight lieutenant, Viking pilot on the King's flight. And he flew the fourth aircraft, which was a mobile workshop, which kept the rest of the fleet going. And on that tour, they flew 61,000 miles and stayed serviceable within their own uh, backup. Uh, which I think goes to show just how engineering had improved as a result of the war. Now, let's have a look at the Viking. There's the front end. Nothing special or VIP about that, but it had everything necessary. The royal cabin had just two seats in it, uh, one for the king, one for the queen, uh, a small baggage area on the right, and a telephone, which went to the front of the aircraft to either speak to the steward or the captain of the King's flight. And believe it or not, we didn't get secure mobile uh, phone um, service into Royal and government aircraft until the Second Gulf War in 2001. Uh, up until then, yes, we could use the phone and get contact with uh, London, but it had to be through Porter's Head Radio with the, uh, the Royal Navy, and therefore it was uh, insecure. But secure comms did come eventually. The government copped up the money. Now, the Viking was still in service when King George VI died, and the unit became the Queen's fight on the 6th of February 1952. And of course, as you may remember, the first trip Her Majesty did as Queen was not with the Queen's flight, but with BOAC when she returned from Africa, having learnt of the death of her father to be met by the government of the day. But she and Prince Philip were very soon using the Vikings on their uh, trips. This picture was taken at RAF Morton in Marsh in Gloucestershire in 1953. And Prince Philip also started to use it for his own engagements. And as soon as Her Majesty had been crowned in 1953, he announced he'd like to learn to fly. So a couple of the trainers of the day, de Havilland Canada chipmunks, were brought to Benson, some minor modifications done to them, and then they were ready to teach Prince Philip to fly. He flew the chipmunk not from Benson most of the time, because there was no M40 or M4 in those days, so coming out of London to go to Benson would take half the day. So what they did almost every day, they would take off from Benson and fly to White Waltham near Maidenhead, and he would travel out from there. Of course, he, he was at Windsor Castle. It was just down the road. But he'd fly from there. He moved on after the chipmunk to the Harvard. And after some de Havilland Dove twin-engine training, the Royal Navy loaned Prince Philip one of their herons. And he started to fly himself to his own engagements in the left-hand seat with a Queen's flight captain in the right-hand seat. Now, those chipmunks came back into service in 1970 when the Prince of Wales learned to fly. And I've been showing this slide for now for about well, getting on for 20 years. And about 10 years ago, a little old lady in one afternoon WI said, what's that pigeon doing on there? Now, I've got a modern photo of it. There we are. No pigeon, but a Grimes light. 
but uh, you can tell it's a 1950s modification look. No health and safety there, just a bolt sticking out underneath. And a year after uh, the Prince of Wales learnt to fly the chipmunk, he moved on to Cranwell and did a nine-month course learning to fly on the hunting Jet Provost Mark V. He then moved on, did some twin-engine training in the Bassett before going on, like his father, to fly the Andover. And there's another royal pilot while he was still at school learning to fly a glider and uh, before moving on to the Royal Navy uh, and, of course, flew in the Falklands War. We now have other royal pilots, of course, Prince William, or now the Duke of Cambridge, uh, got his wings at Cranwell after a three-month course uh, from his father and then moved on to fly initially in the left-hand seat as a co-pilot on the uh, uh, helicopters, the rescue helicopters, uh, the Sea Kings at Anglesey Valley, and then later, before he finished, he became a captain. And then, of course, he moved on from the uh, seeking into civilian life and became a helicopter pilot with the East Anglian Air Ambulance Service based at Cambridge. And of course the other royal pilot of course was uh, Prince Harry who joined the Army Air Corps and flew the Apache helicopters. But let's go back to the history now. The Viking was in service and they wanted a replacement. Now Again, Fieldham wanted to replace the Viking with the Vickers Viscount, uh, same as BEA had done. But the dreaded accountants were around even then, and they said, no, it's too expensive. You can have the heron. Now, Fieldham went up to the Air Ministry when the announcement was made and came back that afternoon, called all the pilots, engineers, and admin staff onto the hangar floor at Benson and said, gentlemen, we asked for a Daimler They've given us a Ford. <laughs> now, what was the problem? Well, it was, could still not go above 10,000 feet because it was still unpressurized. It wasn't air conditioned, but they wanted to operate it around the world. It needed refueling more often than the Viking. So where was the, the savings there? The air ministry said, of course, ah, but it's got four engines, so it's safer. But if you're a cynic like me, all that means is you've got twice as much chance of having an engine failure. Inside, however, it was very comfortable, nice large seats, nice table to either work at or eat, huge windows, of course. Um, I mean, you go outside and look at Concord, you can hardly see the windows. But of course, being unpressurized, you can have nice large windows. The problem was the front end was quite small as well and the navigator didn't have room to get into the cockpit so his setup was at the front on the starboard side in the passenger cabin because they wanted to operate it worldwide and they needed therefore a navigator and worldwide it did go. Uh, here this picture was taken in Nigeria to Nugu with Her Majesty and Prince Philip arriving. Later on that same tour they moved on to Ghana and they were doing a trip one morning out of Accra to a strip up country an hour away. After half an hour, they measured the temperature on board. It was 125 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can imagine Her Majesty trying to get out looking neat and tidy after that. So almost as soon as the Heron came into service, they were looking for a replacement. It didn't come until 1964 
when the Avro 748, known in military circles as the Andover Mark II, I will never know why, because the Andover Mark I didn't come along until two years later. But we are talking about the Royal Air Force. Um, however, two delivered in 1964, and the third one came and replaced the final Heron in 1967. And here's a picture of uh, the Andover Mark II landing at a place called Dubti in Ethiopia with Her Majesty on board. A couple of things I want you to notice. First of all, the two flags or standards. I'll talk about those a little bit later. But the second one is just how clean the fuselage, the engine nacelles, and the propellers are. And when I say clean, I mean clean, as you can see here. But there was a problem. Our engineers were polishing that aircraft so hard they were actually polishing out the millions of rivets that Avro had lovingly put in at Woodford. So what was to happen? Well, luckily, they were saved by ICI's paint division at Slough, who just developed polyurethane paint. And to keep that clean, it was a bit like a car. You just needed a chamois leather and water. So the famous red, white, and blue um, color scheme with the Union flag on the tail replacing the RAF flash. And it carried on until about four years ago. Inside the Andover, while we're looking at it, it had four seats in the Royal Cabin, enough for Her Majesty Prince Philip, Lady-in-Waiting and Private Secretary. And that's laid for afternoon tea. Um, that service was in use in the Viking and then on the Heron on the Andover. It was in use when I was on the flight in 90, in, on the 146. And I checked up three months ago. It's still in use today. So it's a classic case. It was mapping and web silver. Classic case of buy well and it lasts. But the 146 is the aircraft they use rarely now, I must say, because it's 32 years old, the uh, two X Queen's flight 146s. Um, I'll talk about the 146 a little bit later. I want to pop back now and talk about Brian Trubshaw. Now, Brian Trubshaw was an excellent test pilot, as we all know. And in 1947, he learned to fly the helicopter. Now, I've got 13,500 flying hours, and I have tried to fly a helicopter on the odd occasion with little or no success. So I've got a lot of admiration for Brian Trubshaw. He learned to fly this aircraft because they were doing a trial to see whether a helicopter was a suitable vehicle for royal travel. And they took mail from Aberdeen Airport to Balmoral during the summer when Her Majesty was up there allegedly on holiday, but actually does a lot of work while she's there. And the mail was flown up in the morning, answered, and then flown back to Aberdeen, and then back by British Airways to London. Because after Her Majesty has seen all government papers, they have to go to the Prince of Wales, and he has to see them all as well. So if anything happened to Her Majesty, the Prince of Wales is fully conversant with what is going on. It was decided that the helicopter really was a very suitable vehicle for royal travel, but things happened slowly. It was 1953 when Central Flying School loaned the Queen's Flight uh, a helicopter, uh, the S-51, and it was really Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and Prince Philip who pushed for the Queen's Flight to get their own helicopter. It came in 1958 in the form of the Western Whirlwind, and revolutionized royal flying. Instead of doing two engagements a day, they could do five. 
And of course, this meant they could get around Britain a lot easier. Um, helicopter country really was up as far as Birmingham to the north, and the rest of the south of England out to Kent or down to Dorset, that sort of thing. But other than that, then it was probably a bit quicker to do it by fixed wing. But it really did make a difference. They were re-engined in the mid-60s, but sadly in 1967, after taking off from Benson to go to see Westlands to talk about a new replacement helicopter, one of the whirlwinds crashed near Newbury, killing the crew and the then captain of the Queen's flight and the senior engineering officer. The whirlwinds were grounded, never flew again in royal circles, and they had to wait 18 months before that replacement, which was the Western Wessex, came along. I'm going to show you a photograph at the end of this. That was 1968. In 1997, that aircraft did its very last royal flight, and I've got a picture of it then, which I'll show you later. But here's Her Majesty getting out of a Wessex for the very first time, it was during her Silver Jubilee. She spent the night on a Royal Naval vessel off the uh, Irish coast and then flew into Belfast to start her engagements there. The gentleman saluting her is Air Commodore Sirachi Winskill, who was then the captain of the Queen's flight. He was my first captain when I joined in 1981. In fact, he retired at the end of that year. Very popular with Her Majesty as well. A wonderful character, ex-wartime uh, uh, Battle of Britain pilot from Biggin Hill on 32 Squadron on Spitfires. Now the big advantage of the helicopter, it could pick you up in your back garden if you happen to live at Windsor Castle. Where they hold the garden parties at to Buckingham Palace, they'd land the helicopter there. And the two out-of-town houses, Gatcombe and Highgrove, of course, are surrounded by their own fields, so there's no problem landing there. Now there was talk of getting fixed wing into the centre of London to pick them up instead of having to go the Buckingham Palace. Uh, people living in Buckingham Palace used to come to Heathrow. The people living in Kensington Palace, we used to pick them up from uh, Northolt. So someone came up with the idea of central London and the Mall was mentioned. <laughs> now, I must admit, I rather fancied the idea, but uh, it never got off the drawing board. Actually, that was drawn by my co-pilot when I went up to Buckingham Palace to receive an honour from Her Majesty. But the big thing about the helicopter, as I say, it can pick you up in your back garden, but it can take you to places you wouldn't be able to go to by any other means. This is the Northern Isles of Scotland, and you can see the surrounding terrain is pretty hopeless as far as landing is concerned. The harbour was too small for the Royal Yacht, so it was really only a helicopter that could do the job, and the only flat bit of ground they could fly in was the beach. So they tied the visit in with the tide timetables, and off they went. Again, as soon as we got helicopters, Prince uh, Philip said he'd like to fly those. He continued to fly the helicopter until he was 70, and continued fixed wing, <coughs> excuse me, until he was 75. The problem with the helicopter towards the end, he got arthritis in his wrists and hands, and he found twisting and lifting the collective lever too difficult, so he stopped when he was 70. Now, inside the Wessex, we used to have either five or seven seats, and it depended how far you wanted to go or how many passengers you were going to carry. 
The only crew member, the captain and the navigator, were upstairs in the cockpit. The only other crew member on board was the crew chief, who was an engineer. And he would bring the steps in, close the doors, and if necessary, also serve the food, which would only be a tray of sandwiches, or if it was an afternoon trip, it might be an afternoon tea tray of scones and jam and so forth. If it was an evening trip, he actually sat on a little bar box. And in the side was a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of gin, a bottle of red wine, a bottle of white wine, and a bottle of Dubonnet. And if you look carefully, you can see where he capes the tonic water at the back. Now, here's a picture of the helicopter uh, out in the field. And the royal, as you can probably see there, is uh, Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal. She's saying goodbye to the grey-haired gentleman, who is uh, the Lord Lieutenant. Behind him is the Chief Constable. The big fluffy hat belongs to the lady-in-waiting. The gentleman here in RAF uniform is Vice Marshal Sir John Seven, who was then in uh, 19, when this was taken, 1985, uh, he was the captain of the Queen's flight. The gentleman I haven't mentioned here is her personal protection officer, and I want you to look at his hands. What he's actually doing then, as he approaches the aircraft, is taking a magazine of bullets out of the pistol. He'll put the magazine in one pocket, the pistol in the other. When they get to their destination, he'll rearm and carry on with his protection duties. So let's go back a bit and look here at that picture I showed you in 1953 at RAF Morton in Marsh. With four Vikings, they did 60 royal flights in the year. That last photograph in 1985, with just one additional aircraft, two Wessex helicopters and three Andovers, we did 1,200 royal flights in the year. Now, in order to do that, even if Her Majesty was due to fly, there was no backup aircraft. So how did we do it? Well, the answer was we had a dispatch reliability in excess of 99.9%. .9%. And it is to the testament of our engineers that that was possible. But I think the thing that you see, if you look at the fixed wing end of the hangar or the helicopter end, is how clean that hangar floor is. Our aircraft developed leaks like everybody else's do. But you could spot it very quickly, and our engineers would be on the job, and they would work on the aircraft until it was serviceable. Not until it was next required, until it was serviceable. Because every now and again, something happens, like, for instance, King Hussein dying at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I took off from Northolt at 5 o'clock that afternoon for Amman, flying overnight for the Prince of Wales to attend the funeral, which of course had to be within 24 hours. So my wife always used to complain I was forever listening to the news. You heard the news an hour ago, but it was for a reason. But the engineers, as I say, worked tirelessly. If they found a problem with the engine, this is a 146 engine inspection, they could change it. And it would take them about four hours. The advantage of the 146, you didn't need a huge amount of equipment. The little jacks used to just plug in there, and they're standing on the hangar floor, and you could just wind it up, and it took about four hours. Now, here's a guy cleaning a 146. I mentioned about chamois leather and water, but he's actually using a rag and a brush. 
Now, why is that? Well, underneath, in the summer, and this year would be a classic case, if you're taxiing on asphalt, very often flecks of asphalt get stuck underneath, a bit like flies on the front of your car. And if you don't get them off quickly, they stick and then they scratch when you do eventually take them off. Why is he doing it? Well, of course, the party line is he's proud to be a member of the Queen's Flight. But the real reason, of course, is if anyone in the services know, his NCO will inspect it in a few minutes' time, and if it wasn't up to standard, he'd be on a charge. I'm very glad to say we didn't have many charges on the Queen's Flight. Now, the 146. As I say, still in service with 32, the Royal Squadron today, and you may have seen one of them following the C-17 on the fly pass in the Mall last week. Um, why did we get the 146? Well, it was British, and it was really up against a Dutch aircraft and a Canadian aircraft, so it really had to be the 146. It was the quietest, and almost certainly nearly still is, the quietest four-engine jet airliner built. We got the 100 series, which was the smallest, because we wanted to get in and utilize its very good short landing and takeoff capabilities. The 200 isn't quite as good, so we needed the 100 because our primary role was to fly the royal family to the people of Britain. And we wanted to use, as well as the major international airfields like Manchester and Glasgow, we needed to get into Dundee, Carlisle, Sheffield, Plymouth, those two have, have since uh, departed, but uh, nevertheless, they were in quite regular use back in the late 1990s. The other place it could use, of course, was London City, and it was the first four-engine jet to be licensed in and out of London City using the steep approach there. Well, the cockpit was designed for two pilots, but we'd had a navigator on board the Andover, and for the first few years, we kept a navigator sitting on the jump seat um, of the 146, whilst the aircrew were really getting to grips with the new aircraft. Eventually, the navigators were replaced by two inertial nav systems, or GPSs. Um, they immediately, the navigators union, said, you'll never be able to do the timing to our standard and so forth. But um, as we shall see, it did work out in the end. The big difference when we got the 146 was the galley, because cooking in the Andover was a bit like cooking in a caravan, and that's the best description I can give. But we had blower ovens, and you could take food from frozen uh, and have it ready at top of climb 20 minutes later. In my day, all the food came uh, that left Benson uh, came from British Airways kitchen at Heathrow, and we would normally take a maximum of about six days' worth of food out of London. Uh, the first day would go into the cabin, obviously. The rest would stay in a cold box in the hold on dry ice. After that, we would only pick up food from an airfield kitchen recommended by British Airways, if we couldn't get that, we'd go to a five-star hotel or four-star hotel, the Hilton, the Hyatt, the Intercontinental, the Sheraton, something like that, normally where the crew was staying. And that was our excuse for staying at decent hotels. Um, but if we weren't there, then we never left UK without what I call the bottom line in catering. And you can still get them today. You remember those flat tinned meat pies by Frey Bentos? And we would take those, 
we would take tin potatoes, tin vegetables. The stewards would tart up a gravy, a gravy. They'd add some onions and some spices. And we'd serve steak and kidney pie or chicken and leek pie or something like that. And do you know the royal family used to love it? I think, you know, it might have been in the middle of Africa, but I think it was because it was so different from the poncy first-class food they got everywhere else. Anyway, behind the galley would normally be first-class, but in fact, Her Majesty wanted to sit at the back in the 146, the reason being she could see out of the window unhindered by the engines and the wings, and she said, I can then wave goodbye and they can see me waving goodbye. So immediately behind the kitchens was the crew accommodation. This is the middle cabin, which was the household staff, which had her policeman. Uh, it would have uh, the baggage master, the secretaries. Uh, sometimes if a lady was traveling on her own, a hairdresser, um, the military ADC, that sort of thing. And they had, the secretaries had a little office station I've almost cut out the electric typewriter there because obviously now it's all computers and so forth. And then the royal cabin. Uh, six seats now, we're going up every time. So Her Majesty, Prince Philip, lady-in-waiting, private secretary. And if we went on an overseas tour, it would then be the British ambassador or high commissioner for the country concerned and a representative, normally someone from their foreign office, of the host country. There was always a battle between that representative and the wife of the ambassador or um, high commissioner. But the royal household staff, the private secretaries were very, very good. I never heard one of them lose the battle. You know, it is most important that we have a representative from the host country, after all they've invited us and so forth, which really meant you're not getting in. The first 146 royal flight was the honeymoon of the Duke and Duchess of York. And that picture was taken at Heathrow and appeared in most of the daily papers the following day, along with this one. Our engineers had been busy in the hangar overnight with the old plate, just married, um, wedding bells and horseshoes. They tipped the press off to look at the back of the aircraft as they departed. Now, the captain of the King's, uh, Queen's flight was on board, but he knew absolutely nothing about this. And had he seen it at Heathrow, he'd have gone ballistic, believe you me. But he didn't find out until five days later when he was out in the Azores waiting for the return trip. And they'd taken out all the paper. He'd stayed out there. And the crew had taken out all the papers that were of the last four days, including the day after the wedding. So he saw it then, but no one had complained to him. So he saw the funny side of it, but he wouldn't have seen the funny side at Heathrow on the day, I can assure you. Now the red carpet, the bane of our lives. We always used to say to host stations, please, by all means, have a red carpet, but make sure it stays outside of the wingtip. And you taxi in, and you'd see the guy with the table tennis bats at the front, and his pals standing on the carpet, going like this, and you look down, and the last few meters are rolled up. So you knew what they were going to try and do. They were going to try and line this door up with them. We said to the hosts always that wherever we finish up, the royal will come down the steps and we'll walk 
to the red carpet. I took the Prince of Wales to Lagos in Nigeria, and we had a full state arrival, which meant 21 guns salute, and there were over 100 ministers on the red carpet for him to shake hands with. And they tried to line us up with the uh, steps, and it failed, usually by about eight yards, and this was about that. The Prince of Wales was a little while coming down the steps because he flew the aircraft in, so he had to get up, go down the back, tidy up, and come down the steps, by which time about 30% of the ministers were beginning to wonder, should they shuffle forward in line and so forth. And the classic happened, just as he came down the steps, they'd all broken ranks, some were in front, some stayed, and he strode manfully, I've never seen him walk so quick, strode manfully for the red carpet. And of course they all started shuffling back, absolute shambles. But I couldn't see his face, but I know there was, if there wasn't a grin, it was a hidden grin. Uh, because, uh, you know, what a way to start a royal visit, it really was. Now, I mentioned we had two pilots. We also had two stewards to look after the food, one prepared, one served. And we would have a crew chief, an engineer. If we went on a long trip, we'd have three other engineers. Uh, so we had airframes, engines, and electrics all covered, plus the crew chief, who was multi-trained. Um, but we had two other people on board. Um, one of them here um, is a group captain who was, that one was a part-time group captain as far as the Queen's flight was concerned. We had two deputy captains. Once we started to do 1,200 royal flights a year, you could not have the captain of the Queen's flight doing them all. So he got in two group captains. One was full-time, DC-1 as he was known, and the second one was DC-2 and he was part-time because his primary job was station commander, Royal Air Force Benson. But it was amazing how they could find time whenever there was a decent overseas tour, and I'm looking at someone now who's in the audience who fulfilled that post, um, it was amazing how they found time to come away. But I've got to say, they did a marvelous job because they were the link between the Royal Party and the crew. And if you had a gr group captain on board, if anything changed or anything like that, he took all the, the, the problems and we just got on with the job, which was great. The other Royal Air Force guy was this chap here. He's an RAF policeman. Could have been a corporal. We had corporal sergeant, flight sergeant, and this is the senior one, the warrant officer. And they looked after the security of the aircraft and all the baggage that came on and went off. The gentleman coming up to meet is the Lord Lieutenant. And he's in full uniform this time. The last time you saw him, he was actually in a suit. Now, the reason being, you can't see it in this photograph, but part of the official uniform are spurs. And that helicopter was departing on quite long grass. And if you've ever tried to walk with spurs, forwards and backwards in long grass, it's very difficult. And the average age of Lord Lieutenants is getting on, shall we say, so they are given dispensation to wear civilian clothing. Now, you probably don't recognize the member of the royal family. Well, he's actually His Majesty the Sultan of Brunei, who was representing Her Majesty the Queen at Royal Air Force Cramble, where this picture was taken in 1993. He was on a state visit, uh, but went to represent Her Majesty uh, at one of the 
Cranwell Wings parades, just the same as the army have the uh, Sovereign's Parade at Sandhurst, Cranwell have one uh, Queen's Parade at Cranwell, and it is either Her Majesty or her representative will go. And in this case, the Sultan of Brunei was asked to do it, and in the afternoon, in fact, he opened a new lecture theatre at Cranwell that the Brunei government had paid for as a thank you to the Royal Air Force training their pilots. Now, there are three buzzwords about royal flying. Above all, safety. But comfort goes with it as well, and we tried to make every flight as comfortable as possible, as well as being on time. And an on-time arrival was plus or minus five seconds. And we made it on over 90% of occasions. Now, if we met bad weather, um, then we might have to slow down to make it more comfortable. In that case, we throw the timing away. But we used to fly at a slightly intermediate speed, 250 knots indicated, which would allow us to pick up ducking and weaving about seven minutes in an hour. Um, but you couldn't slow down that much because the nose would come up so much the gin and tonic would slide off the table. So, but generally speaking, the Royals were very good at getting to the start of the day on time. Coming home at night didn't matter so much, so their timing wasn't quite as good. But they were normally pretty good, or do we have to say the Metro Police uh, escort, motorcycle escorts were very good indeed, because getting out to Northolt in, uh, just after rush hour could be quite a problem. But I talk about safety being paramount. I've got a couple of shots here that show that. This was the first time one of the members of the royal family had been to an oil rig on the North Sea. And we flew the princess up to Aberdeen, fixed wing, and she got out of the helicopter and would not, out of fixed wing, and would normally have walked straight to the helicopter. In fact, in this case, she had to go to the Bristow's hangar and watch the same video that all the oil workers watch every time they go out to uh, an oil rig. So they know what to do in the event of the helicopter landing on the water. And of course, she had to then don an immersion suit, which I think goes to prove she could look attractive wearing almost anything. Now, we got two days warning of Prince William's first ever flight. So we sent our engineering officer and our adjutant into Mother Care in Reading and said, come back with a carry cot and a carry cot restraint. You note I didn't say buy a carry cot and a carry cot restraint. And Mother Care saw it our way and uh, gave us a carry cot. Not this one, the standard blue one. And remember in those days you could put your children on the back seat, uh, sideways on the back seat of a car, and just have an attachment round it clipped to the seat belts to uh, stop it bouncing up and down or coming off. And if we'd met turbulence in the, over the Pennines going up to Aberdeen, then he would have been absolutely safe. When they got to Aberdeen, they popped him in their own little bassinet, laid it on the back seat of the rover and just drove off with no other protection. But we'd done our job. Now, just over two years later, he did his first solo flight. And there he is thanking the group captain at the bottom of the steps, much to the delight of uh, the... Uh, the photographers, about 60-odd photographers who were waiting at Aberdeen. It wasn't long before he had a partner in crime, and there's uh, the uh, Prince Harry about to climb aboard the uh, 146. Now, Her Majesty is very keen to be involved with the people who fly her. And this picture was taken on the occasion of the delivery of the third 146 at Christmas 1990. 
And uh, while she was there, she uh, met the crew that were going to fly her out to Marham. She was going to spend Christmas at Sandringham. Um, and uh, while they were there, they took a crew photograph. Now, that is the Queen's Pride, 170 people. If you ignore the fancy uniforms in the front, the rest of the air crew are in the front row, including their one Royal Naval pilot because one of our helicopter pilots was supplied by the fleet air arm, really because of the links with the fleet air arm with Prince Philip, Prince Andrew, and the Prince of Wales, who did, of course, having been trained by the Royal Air Force, did their operational flying with the Royal Navy. And behind, of course, are the, uh, the remainder of the engineers and admin staff. But in 1994 came the Pocock Report. It was a review of Royal and Communication Flying, and the idea was that they would look and see what needed to be done. And the answer of the report came out that the Queen's flight needed to be expanded. And probably the easiest way was to get two of the 125s from Northolt to join the Queen's flight to do some of the shorter trips. Uh, the Defense, uh, Ministry of Defense looked at the report and came up with the immortal words, we think we can do it cheaper. So, on the 31st of March 1995, the Queen's flight was disbanded. The following day, a date not lost on some of us, number 32 squadron became number 32, the Royal Squadron. Virtually overnight, the engineers there were not RAF, they were civilians. It was one of these stations which had been contractorized. So it's now Serco, I can't remember who it was in those days. But they had to learn two new aircraft, the 146 and the Wessex, as well as the one they knew, the de Havilland 125s. Very difficult to get up to royal standard almost instantly. And if we look at this picture again, the aircrew traveled, four operations staff, six engineers, and four policemen. The rest rejoined the Royal Air Force. And that's where the MOD thought they would get the savings. Alas, they, the company had banked on about 30% of the RAF engineers joining that company. But what they hadn't taken into account was most of the people living at Benson were living west of Benson, out at Whitney and places like that, where they could afford housing. And of course, they certainly couldn't afford housing at Ryslip. So only about four people joined. So they were desperately short of 146 experience. They were slightly lucky in the fact that Hatfield was closing, and one or two of the guys there didn't want to go up to Manchester, relocate to Manchester. So they had 146 experience, so joined the, uh, the company. But I always describe that first year with the analogy of the swan. It might have looked serene on the surface, but there was a hell of a lot of bloody paddling going on underneath. There were sadly a couple of very serious incidents, none of them involving members of the royal family, luckily, but one aircraft took off from Northolt to go to Stansted to do some training, lost an engine en route because of low oil pressure. A second one fa engine failed downwind, and just after it touched down, the third of the fourth engines failed. And what had happened? Well, the magnetic plug that they put into the engine to check the oil and check whether anything is breaking up in the engine has a seal on it. And they'd fitted the plug without the seal. 
but they'd done it on all four engines. Now, the CAA had demanded that only about two months before that they never change both sides. In other words, a twin-engined aircraft, you only change one, and a four-engined aircraft, you only change two maximum, but on each side. And there'd been a British Midlands 737 takeoff from East Midlands, and he managed to divert um, on one engine to, uh, to Luton. Um, so it happened. Luckily, they got away with it, but um, it was all part, really, of this huge learning curve that MOD had given this new company to look after. Now, the 125, if you imagine the 146 as the Jaguar, this is the MG sports car, and it had a crew of two pilots and a crew chief, uh, sorry, and a steward. Um, a nice tight cockpit, lovely aircraft to fly. There's the galley, eight inch square sink, a hot tap and a cold tap, and that was it. So if you wanted a meal, it had to be a salad. If you wanted to uh, carry your baggage um, for any distance, you had to take seats out because there was no baggage hold. So there was no, um, everyone sat in the same cabin. That door led to the loo, so there was no privacy for the royal or anything. Um, and so the idea was it would only be used for the male members of the royal family going on relatively short trips. If the Duke of Kent wanted to go with his uh, private secretary and policeman to Manchester to open a, a factory, then absolutely fine, no problem at all. But if he wanted to go to Germany to visit his two regiments, taking his, their two former commanding officers, taking all his baggage with a baggage master, a military ADC and so forth, for a week, no chance of getting it in. So the 146 would have to do that. Now, in my time, it was virtually I traveled worldwide. I didn't travel to the western part of Canada to New Zealand and most of Australia. I did land in Darwin en route to Papua New Guinea. But why not Canada, New Zealand and Australia? Well, if you think about it, they're the senior Commonwealth and they're allowed to fly the Royal Family themselves. So the Royal Australian Air Force or Qantas, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces or Air Canada and the Royal New Zealand Air Force or Air New Zealand can fly the Royal Family. And you may remember about 15 years ago now, her Majesty went to New Zealand, and for the first time, she flew on a scheduled Air New Zealand flight out of Gatwick uh, to New Zealand. And they took over the whole of the first class. Now, what about, normally what they did, if it was going to Australia, one year the Australians would do it, the next year the RAF would do it. So what did the RAF use? Well, in the late, early 60s, they were using Comet 2s based at 216 Squadron at RAF Lynham, and then they were taken over by the VC-10s based at 10 Squadron at Bryce Norton. But they eventually were really stopped from flying the Royals because most of the major airports banned them on noise, and of course their fuel burn was enormous, and therefore it was getting quite costly. So. The Royal Family then tended to charter aircraft, and normally from British Airways, and uh, to help offset the costs of this, they would let the press fly in economy, and they would charge them the due rate. And if necessary, once the Royal Yacht had been decommissioned, they would often take the Royal Marine Band with them in order to play at various functions. 
Once a trip had been planned, and perhaps the Air Force were told they were doing it, then operations would look after the booking of fuel, uh, the airfields, the handling agents, the hotels, and the diplomatic clearances. Every country we overflew, we had to tell them where we were entering, where, how, what route we were flying, what height, and where we were leaving. Why? Because they do the same to us, or we demand the same of them. I'm going to show you some pictures now taken on a typical tour. It happened to be back in the 80s, but it doesn't matter. It started down in Mozambique, went through Zambia, up through Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia, uh, Mogadishu, positively the worst night stop I've ever had in my life, then Djibouti and into Khartoum and then into the area of the Sudan. Now, as I mentioned before, if you go to a country, the very first arrival is normally at the capital and it's a state arrival with a 21-gun salute and so forth. Very stuffy, uh, lots of shaking of hands and it takes forever and a day. But when you get up country, and I'm going to pick here Mbeya in Tanzania, it's a different story. Just a dozen people to meet the Princess Royal there. And far from being a stuffy arrival, the kids were dancing and singing, making a lot of noise. It was absolutely incredible. And also, the mamas, as I call them at the back there in their national dress, uh, issued with their union flags given by the embassy, um, they would shriek an arrival. So the whole thing was just really fantastic. And um, the royal family used to love it. Now, on the other end of the scale, we were asked to go to a place called Zelingi. Now, we, could, we found a map, and it had a circle saying there was an airstrip there, but we couldn't find any details about it. We asked our air attaché, but he actually was actually the air attaché for Kenya and covered Somalia, uh, Sudan as well. So he didn't know anything about it. It was long before you could look at Google Earth and have a look at it for yourself, of course. So we did have a little bit of help from an office in the Ministry of Defence, which I'm not allowed to say any more about, but it was fairly obvious to give an answer yes or no, we had to go and have a look. Now, on overseas tours like this, we would very often take the royal household round with us, and they would do their recce while we were doing ours. And in this case, they worked out, it took us two and a half weeks. If they'd done it, civil air, it would have taken nearly three months. Uh, so a lot of the places didn't have any airline connections, so it did pay dividends. So we went to have a look. We chartered an aircraft from Niala to go into Zelingi from Save the Children Fund, in fact, and there was the picture I took as we were going into the airstrip. We were told we were parking under this tree, <laughs> and we knew we'd have to stay there for about four hours because the idea was the princess was going to look at a refugee camp, Save the Children refugee camp, on the uh, Chad-Sudan border, about four hours away. So we looked at the runway, and it was certainly quite rough, and there were a lot of large stones. So we said, could you clear those off? And they said, yes, we'll do that, no problem. And I said, could you paint some white stones to mark out the airstrip? Because if the visibility isn't quite as good as it was that day, then we may need them. And they said, yes, we'll do that. Just as we were about to leave, one guy said, would you like an armed guard? Because there are still dissidents in this area. So we said, too right, we'd like an armed guard, please. So roll on now, six weeks. 
And there we are. The Save the Children aircraft had landed. The meet and greet party are under the tree. And they put two white stones in either side. Now, I was looking for the armed guard, because I thought we'd get a Land Rover and a Bren gun or a tank or something like that. And I couldn't see it, and I said to the co-pilot, right, we'll land anyway. And uh, just after I'd taken over, he said, oh, I've spotted something. <laughs> I'll blow it up. And there he was, and over his shoulder was a Lee Enfield 303 rifle. <laughs> but they'd landed, so so did we and we parked under our tree. And uh, there is the Princess Royal in the middle there, uh, met, oh, these are all our passengers, met by the local council, the Save the Children Fund staff, and a few security guys who were going to travel in the motorcade off to the Chad border. After they departed, um, we had a wander around, but I just want to point out one little thing on that photograph. That guy's her personal protection officer, doing his job in the height of the noonday sun. Everyone else is looking in, he's looking out. But I went and had a look. I'm not going to complain about the spelling of welcome, because I can't read the Arabic script above. And he rode round, only had to ride round for three and a half hours, because she got there quicker than expected. The dog appeared after two hours, so it was nothing to do with him. It was just an African pie dog who fancied the horse. And uh, so he rode round. But when we went back two days later to pick them up, one of the problems when you land on a strip like this and departing, they all turn up in their best bib and tucker. But you start the engines and that happens. But there's nothing you can do about it. Now, as well as looking at the quality of the runway, uh, we have to invariably organize refueling. And what we used to do was ring Shell UK. They would uh, immediately say when, where, and how. So we said, right, we'd like so many gallons at such and such a time on such and such an airstrip. They never let us down. And it normally uh, involved uh, arriving on a vehicle with... 45-gallon drums, and if you have 45-gallon drums, you need a woggle pump, and there's a woggle pump, and to operate it, you do this. For five hours to fill an Andover, and nine hours to fill a 146. Now, we would never take on full fuel. We always try and take on the minimum that we require. I'll just go back to that photo. The other thing we need to talk is about air traffic. Can we understand them? Can they understand us? Yes, English is the national language, but very often in the middle of Africa, then they haven't spoken English for years. And so you need to check. Um, in, the, in the case of Zalingi, there was no air traffic at all. So what we did, we got the Save the Children Fund pilot, who funnily enough was a Brit on secondment from Brit Britannia Airways, to act as our air traffic. He landed before us and was going to take off after, so there was no problem, and he said the runway's clear and so forth. So we were able to sort that. Um, moving on, the other thing we have to look at is fire cover. Now this um, is a place called Najombi in Tanzania. And he was very proud of this fire engine. He said, it's British and it was built in 1831. <laughs> now, it had a placard on it, Pyrene, manufacturers of fire equipment since 1831, but I didn't have the heart to tell him. But I noticed one small problem. So I said to him, where's the wheel? He said, oh, it's all right, it's on the Land Rover. 
So you have to ask the supplementary, and yes, you've guessed it, they had five wheels between the two vehicles. So we had a word with the British High Commission when we got back to Dar es Salaam, and three days later, the British Council arrived with three new Land Rover wheels. So when we went back uh, six weeks later, they had a spare and a wheel on each vehicle, and it had had another coat of red paint. But you won't be surprised to know that's not enough fire cover for uh, a Royal Aircraft to land. And uh, sure enough, we had to get a proper airfield tender driven from Dar es Salaam. Now, it took us two hours to fly. <coughs> it took them four days to drive. But had they not got there, the trip would have been cancelled on safety grounds. Safety, as I say, being paramount. And it goes down to the bottom end of things like fire cover. Now, I showed you those two flags flying. This is actually just one flag flying. But if you look carefully, the post is a double post. That's actually the Duke of Edinburgh's personal standard. But we've got quite a few to choose from. You recognize a few, Japan, Tanzania, the, uh, Brazil, uh, Canada. This one's interesting. We all know the Royal Standard that flies over Buckingham Palace or um, Windsor Castle when Her Majesty's in Prepare. I was out in uh, Delhi and we were flying Her Majesty the next day and she was flying out by British Airways that day. And I said to the crew chief, have you got the, uh, the Royal Standard? And he said yes. And he pulled out the one we all know and love. And my f policeman was a fairly senior guy who'd flown Her Majesty overseas a lot and said, that's the wrong one, you need the big E. And I said, the what? I'd never heard of it. And he said, yes, the, the royal standard for the Commonwealth. And that's it. Anyway, we managed to get a mobile phone call through to the, our operations, and they drove very quickly. They had half an hour to get across to Heathrow. And after the official state arrival at Delhi, I sidled over to the 767 and tapped on the side and with a big grin on his face the captain dropped me an envelope and inside was the big E. So the next morning when we taxied out I had the right standard flying and I also still had a job which was more important. <clears throat> now there is an aircraft going on its last royal flight after 29 years service. I show it as testament to our engineers because I will guarantee you it looked better that day, 31st of March 1997, than it did the day it was delivered from Westlands. Absolutely immaculate. If you want to see it today, it's in the Royal Air Force Museum at Hendon. And the other aircraft, we had two Wessex, the other ones down at the Helicopter Museum at to Western Supermare. Now, Her Majesty could not, or the Royal Air Force, could not replace the Wessex. They were eventually stopped from Royal Flying because it was taking 10 to 12 hours of engineering for every one hour's flying. So it just wasn't cost effective. So Her Majesty bought her own helicopter <clears throat> and formed the Queen's helicopter flight. Initially it was at Blackbush, um, but the crew and staff are members of the Royal Household. Um, but they eventually, and that aircraft is the new one, um, exactly the same model but slightly updated. Um, the first one flew for 10 years and then they got this one. And uh, it's in use almost every day. And in fact, the helicopters are so popular, they now charter virtually permanently on Augusta 109 as well. But what happens about fixed wing flying? Well, I mentioned chartering for the long overseas trips, but now the Royal Air Force have sort of virtually priced themselves out of the market, and we've got 
32-year-old aircraft. So most of the flying is done by charter. They have a charter company based at London City, and when the people who own these aircraft don't need them, they'll hand it to the charter company and they try and find work. What happens as far as the security is concerned, I don't know. I don't think it can be the same as when the Royal Air Force were doing it. But this aircraft, for instance, took Her Majesty for the state arrival at Berlin in 2015. And you can see there the captain has just lent the standard out of the open window. Um, the problem was the next day the Queen was visiting uh, Frankfurt and they needed to fly her, the German party, and some of her staff, and quite a bit of the office as well, which can weigh up to about a thousand pounds. And this aircraft obviously couldn't do it. So the Germans lent them, of all things, their VIP Airbus A340 and did the trip. That other aircraft reappeared last year when uh, the uh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge went to Poland. And in fact, there it is. Golf Tango Hotel Foxtrot, G Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, if you think about it. And it's actually owned by the owner of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club and is used quite regularly in Royal Circus. I'm glad to say nowadays some of the longer trips are being done again by the Royal Air Force with the new A330 Voyager. Uh, two of them are in passenger carrying fit and they have a plug-in VIP fit as well. And you may have seen the recent visit by the Duke of Cambridge to the Middle East. He flew in the Voyager. Now, I'm going to answer, just before I finish, a couple of questions that I'm often asked, so I'll answer them before we start. Do I have a favourite destination? Yes, I do. It's in the Hindu Kush in Pakistan and it's called Chitral. I used to talk about it glibly, but unfortunately, Michael Palin went there on his Himalaya tour. Um, Chitral is actually one of the two villages that played polo against each other in episode two. If you happen to look at ITV7 next week, I'm sure it'll be on again. Um, he went into the valley using a Russian-built Land Rover down 92 hairpin bends over from 10,000 feet down to the valley floor at 5,000. We flew over that ridge, uh, the Lowry Ridge, at 12,000 and dropped into the valley. We took a left-hand fork, and when we could see Mount Tirishmir, which is 25,290 feet high, the very western end of the Himalaya, when we could see that, we knew we were in the right valley, and we were looking for the runway. <clears throat> we thought we could see it there. Obviously, the runway is that way in and this way out, as you'll see. When we got a bit closer, we actually started to see the runway. And if you look now from the other end, um, as you can see, it's about 45 degrees off the actual uh, uh, runway heading. And this aircraft now, if you imagine it's turning around and backtracking towards the parking area up here, there's the view it gets. So as well as the 45 degrees off, you've got to come over that ridge, throw it right and land. What we call an exciting arrival. Now, I was due to fly the Princess of Wales. I've been into trial about five times, but I was due to fly the Princess of Wales in there from Peshawar one lunchtime. And the idea was we were going to have lunch on board while we did the hour's flight. Uh, but sadly, there was cloud uh, across the whole valley. And no matter what age you've got, you can't go into an airfield like that. 
Um, so I suggested, it was due to clear at two o'clock, it said. So I said to Her Royal Highness, I think we'll have lunch on board the aircraft, but on the ground, and we'll go in an hour late. And it will mean you'll have to, I'd spoken to the private secretary, adjust the programme slightly. Um, that they agreed to. And uh, the princess said, well, I don't mind if we miss Chitra. We can go back to Islamabad. And I said, I think you'll regret it. It is such a lovely place. And the, luckily, the cloud cleared. Why were we... Uh, we were having lunch on board because they never eat lunch at places in India, Pakistan, unless it's the embassy or a major hotel. They avoid having lunch with the locals. So in this case, we had lunch on board while we were flying. And, of course, when they say, ah, oh, but we'd like to give you lunch, you say, ah, oh, but we are so interested in seeing your marvellous country. This We'll eat on board quickly while we fly and we'll be able to see more of your country, which sort of gets away with it. But the first view the princess had of Chitral was this one, and I think you can see why I think it's absolutely stunning. And we said to her, please, please, you must, must be back on time because we've got to get out of the valley before it gets dark. And she said, okay, fine. And coming back, sometimes she was a little bit uh, occasionally late, shall we say, but she came back 10 minutes early and she'd found these four children. She said, I don't know who they are, but aren't they lovely? Can they be in the photo? Because traditionally, we try and have a crew photograph at some stage down the route with the Royal and they then, when it's published and printed, they will sign a copy for each member of the crew, which is lovely. She's wearing the, uni the uniform of the uh, Chitrali scouts there. And uh, it really was a lovely trip. And five minutes after this was taken, we were airborne and ready to go. Now, the other one I'm asked is, what's your most memorable trip? Well, you were almost certainly watching television at 7 p.m. on the 31st of August 1997. I'd started work that day at about 6 o'clock in the morning when my son had advised me there had been an accident in a tunnel in Paris. So I flew up to uh, pick up the sisters. Then we went up to Aberdeen to pick up the Prince of Wales, flew to Paris. And just before we left Norfolk, we were told we might be bringing the body back. Normally, the body would come back in on day four. There was an op order, but for whatever reason, they decided they might bring the body back that day. So we changed aircraft, actually, and fitted the coffin fit, as it was known, which was a flat floor in the hold uh, with the normal hold of the 146s like that. Um, but we put a flat floor in with ball bearings on it so that you can run the, uh, the coffin easily across it. At any rate... We, uh, we went out to Paris, and they started to arrive about 45 minutes early. But on the way out, I'd been asked by North Old Ops, what time do you think you're back? And I said, don't really know. About we'll get there about 4, they'll probably stay to us. Probably about 7. Little did I know, 10 minutes later, the official announcement to the world's press was the aircraft will be returning at 7 o'clock. Anyway, they were running, we were running about 45 minutes early on this schedule when they started to arrive. And I thought, oh my goodness me, the coffin arrived. And I thought, oh, we're going to struggle to delay. But then we started to see a choir arrive, a bishop arrive. So we thought, ah, they're going to have a service. And they did. And it worked out well. 
We took off and we had just the hour to get back, which is just what we needed. We landed on time and then, of course, television took over and you all saw this sort of thing going on at Northolt. Twenty minutes later, I took off and flew to Aberdeen and uh, the prince, the crew said to me, is the prince going to come up front and say hello? And I said, I doubt it. But uh, when we got to Aberdeen, we just finished the shutdown checks and... Uh, I suddenly noticed the co-pilot wasn't next to me, the crew chief had disappeared, and the steward said over the headset, the prince is coming forward. He came up, we spoke apparently for about four minutes, and then he went back and went off to see the children at uh, Aberdeen. And do you know, half an hour later, I couldn't tell the crew what we'd spoken about. I wouldn't tell you now, but I couldn't even tell my own crew. We, we, I obviously said the sort of things we'd all say, you know, how sorry we were and so forth. But apparently we were chatting for about four minutes and it was just the end of such a long day. The shoulders had dropped and that was it. The following day I flew back down to Northolt with some of his press office and that evening my wife and I went up to, uh, and the two children went up to London, laid some flowers in row two. Uh, when we went back, when these were taken on the Thursday, we just couldn't believe uh, the difference. And we queued from 10 to 1 until 10 to 9 in the evening to go in and sign the Book of Condolence. As I walked in, one of his PPOs said, Graham, you haven't queued up, have you? And I said, yes. He said, oh, you could have rung up, you could have come any time. And I said, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Do you know how we're so reserved? I think it was about four hours before we spoke to the people in front of us. But we went past, and Naffy had uh, a wagon giving tea away and so forth. And I was being very careful not to say too much. But just as we were about to go in the door, the woman in front turned to my wife and said, he knows more than he's letting on, doesn't he? Now, what was said, I don't know. Anyway, we're right at the end now. This was my last trip with the Prince of Wales. I'd flown him over 700 times of my total of over 2,200 royal flights. And he presented me with a lovely coloured photograph, signed coloured photograph of him in RAF uniform and a beautiful pair of Asprey silver cufflinks with the Prince of Wales feathers on. And uh, that is my 20 years with the Royal Flight and 101 years of the history of Royal Flying. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Laurie, what a fascinating talk. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I know it's warm in here, ladies and gentlemen, but if you have any questions, um, far away now. Right. Good job you're in the front row. I've got to walk far. There you go. Uh, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd be very interested to know if there's any of the earlier aircraft still in existence, especially uh, the... Um... The early ones, there is one of the chipmunks is, uh, is around. I know of that. I don't think the Vikings are. I think the list of Vikings that are still around is out in the yard there, and it doesn't include one of ours. The herons, again, I don't think there's a heron around, but there, as I say, the chipmunk is around still, just one of them. And the Andovers... I think there is still, I say I think because it went out to Sudan and there, uh, sorry, Somalia, 
and there have been a couple written off in Somalia, but I don't know whether one of them was ours. There is one of ours still in this country. Whether it is actually still flying, it went to Boscombe Down as a radio uh, research aircraft, and they put lots of different aerials on it and so forth. If it is around, it's at Boscombe Down, but I've not seen it flying for a while, so it may be stuck in the back of a hangar somewhere. But otherwise, the... 146s, two of them are still flying at RAF Northolt with 32 of the Royal Squadron. And the one that was sold in 2002 uh, was actually the one that brought Diana's body back. Um, that was sold to um, an, I get my country right, to an Indonesian oil company and is now operated by an airline. But again, I saw a picture of it at an airfield at the end of March but it had engine covers on and it looked a little tired. So whether it is still flying today, it was flying earlier in the year, I checked. Uh, it did do some flying earlier in the year, but the last flight it did was during March. So whether it's been grounded or not, I don't know. Another question maybe, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, Gareth. Uh, you mentioned the Heron. Uh, the Heron was the first plane I ever flew on to uh, Alderney in the Channel Islands mm. in the mid-60s. As I recall, in the middle of the fuselage, there was like a, a, a big piece that you had to step over that connected the two wings. It was the... And uh, was, did that cause problems for the Royals? It was the main spar that, that uh, you climbed over. I mean, I, I trained, my advanced training was on the Varsity, and that had the same thing that you had to clamber over. Um, it only really affected the two people who, the Prince, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, for instance, who used to come up front to fly it. Um, the rest, the Royal Cabin, was sort of behind that structure. So uh, if the Royal Cabin, I mean, I've got to say, most of the Royals would come up front, whether they did in those days, I suspect it may not have been the same in those days. Um, the whoever was acting as the protocol man on board would be at the foot of the steps as they got off. So my guess is they probably said thank you to him and pass it on to the rest of the crew. Uh, another question. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, could you... Um, do you know the origin of the royal call sign when that first came, and is it used for both military and civilian flights? Yeah, Kitty Hawk. Um, it was... Kitty Hawk was used and selected, I think, post-war. Um, and as far as I can understand, it came probably from Mousefielden. Uh, it may have been as late as Archie Winskill, but I think it came from Mousefielden. They selected Kitty Hawk because of its origins of, of the first flight. Um, there is no such bird as a Kitty Hawk, although the Queensland Association does have a bird as its motif. Um, I know this because my wife was asked to draw and paint the, the kitty hawk bird, and we did a lot of research, and there ain't no such animal. But um, we, found, we found enough. You know, it's got a beak, and it's got feathers, and it's two feet, and so forth. And it's a very nice picture, I must say. Maybe one last question, like. Okay, just let me find my way around. Just while you're moving around, I'll just mention, Kitty Hawk was only used for the top, when I was flying, the top six members of the royal family. Uh, other than that, we just used Kitty 
Kitty Four. I mean, I've been known and still am known as Kitty Four because I spent 20 years with that call sign. And when I got to Northolt, they tried to change it so we'd just use any call sign. But I couldn't get, every time I answered the radio, it was Kitty Four. So I'd done it for 19 years. I wasn't about to change. So I think eventually, when it came round, every time I flew, the call sign was Kitty Four. So. Anyway, yes, one at the back. Hello. Um, I just wondered, one of the... Oh, sorry, I'm over here. Yes, yeah, right, I can see you. One of the um, pictures, you sh photographs you showed of... I can't remember which royal it was. Um, it showed a de Havilland gypsy moth, mm. and there was a registration on the side, G-A-A something. Couldn't see it because somebody annoying was standing in front of it. I was wondering, do you know what that registration mark was, and are the registration marks different on each plane? Because if it was G-A-A-H, that would be Amy Johnson's plane and before she bought Yeah, it, no, they it? are different on everyone. So whatever ah. that fourth one was, there would be G-A-A-A-A, it would be A-A-H. Do you know and, what it was? You don't know what um, it was? I can have a look. Yes, there, I've got a book at home. If Drum you, roll, please. Um, oh I can find out which, <laughs> what, what the registrations were. But, uh, I haven't got it with me tonight. Yeah. But um, we might be able to find out if uh, someone looks on the internet, okay. if the internet's working here, but we're struggling earlier today, I believe. All right, thank you, though. Okay, fine. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham Laurie, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> now, That's yours. Now, thank you very much. While Tim gets the raffle going, just a couple of...